Hey, 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 everybody. My name's Ryan Atkinson, and you are on the Business Cloud. Today's episode was awesome to record with Maria Salamanca. She is a venture capitalist out of San Francisco, and this was like our first real, our first venture capitalist in general on the Business Cloud. Um, her insight on immigration uh, entrepreneurs it was so like lightning to me to like actually like hear like, hey, these are some of the challenges that they face that you that like the public eye may never even realize. Uh, Maria is doing awesome work, just giving them the resources and the financing they need um, to really get their businesses off the ground, give them the resources that they need to succeed. Um, immig- immigrants coming to this country, uh, we talked about in an episode, like they are just like taking the biggest bets on themselves. And Maria isn't, uh, was an immigrant herself, so she has a really unique perspective on it. Maria was totally awesome to interview. I was so thankful to have her on. She's even a Forbes 30 under 30 uh, for VC. So guys, she has so much knowledge just in the industry. And I was so fortunate to get her on. Her Twitter, we talk about it at the end, will be in the, uh, in the bio. Definitely check her out. She's awesome. And if you enjoy this episode at any given point, please press follow, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast. It means a lot. And if you're feeling double friendly, give me a rating in the app store. It really does mean a lot to me. Guys, let's dive in this episode. It is fun. It is educational. And I'm so excited to give it a listen. Let's go. I'm super excited. Welcome, Maria Salamanca, to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Like I said, super yeah. excited. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Excited to be here. Perfect. Before we get started, I got to ask us the kickoff question just to, just to get it going. Um, is that perfect for you? Yeah, of course. Perfect. So the fun little question that we're going to ask is, uh, if you could eat dinner with one person, dead or alive, uh, who would it be and why? Oh, gosh. Um, I think one of the people I really, I mean, I, I think Nassim Taleb from uh, Antifragile is one of my favorite books. He's also a great thinker. I think he's super interesting. And you know, I don't know if he would be the most friendly in a dinner, but I think he would have a lot of hot takes that I could learn a lot from. So he would definitely be one of those. I love it. I've actually, I've been wanting to read one of his books. I saw a tweet like a month ago and it was like, if you don't, if you read one of his books and you're not thrown against the wall and like anger, like you didn't really read the book. I don't know. Yeah. He must have some amazing takes then. <laughs> he does. He has many amazing takes. He just, everything that is common knowledge. He tries to turn it around. Um, but he's a very logical human. So it really is, it's a good, um, kind of challenge to, to norms. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I would really, I, I do need to read it. I know he has black swan and, uh, the asymmetrical one. I don't know if you've read yeah. it. Anti-fragile is my favorite by far. Anti-fragile. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I'll get on that and I'll get back to you on that, but can we hear like a an introduction about you. I gave a little bit of an inside, but you have so much story that I'm super excited to hear from you. Yeah, I'm happy to. Well, I, I was born in Colombia. I came to the U.S. when I was uh, seven years old, moved to, to Orlando, Florida, is where I really grew up all the way to high school. Um, and like suburbia, big 4,000 people high school. Uh, pretty formative growing up in a big place like that. And headed off to California and Berkeley for college. Uh, I was initially going to be pre-law, loved everything that was public policy and political science, mm-hmm. which is what I studied. And I think being at Berkeley, really, it, it was mostly around my senior year that I fell in love with kind of that intersection between policy and tech. And I thought there's something really cool, both tech and uh, 
government and policy tend to be the two things that kind of solve for very big macro problems. And yeah. so I, I found it fascinating and there was a lot of really exciting stuff happening at the time. And so I started, um, there, there was this, I did a couple of normal internships at the consulting and the banking, you know, you can imagine, but definitely didn't enjoy that. So my senior year went in and there was this organization that was coming out called Forward.us. It was just getting started. It was led by Zuckerberg's roommate from Harvard, Joe Green. And they had basically got together a bunch of tech CEOs and VCs. It was a like Ron Conway and Reid Hoffman and Bill Gates, all these um, big names and, and CEOs yeah. like Drew Houston and Max Lepkin. And, and the idea was they were going to be kind of the first uh, lobbying group that was stood for tech and VC and it was around immigration lobbying. And so it was comprehensive immigration, first lobbying group, obviously tech as a tech company, as I, like they've been very active in Washington lobbying when it comes to patent law, you know, yeah. um, a lot of different things, but it was kind of the first social issue that I guess you could argue many of them uh, felt strongly about enough to put money and start a lobbying group behind. So cold emailed them and I was like, I love what you're doing. Like would love to work here my senior year of college. I'll do whatever, you don't have to pay me mm. anything. And I uh, got really lucky that one of my mentors, even from back then, his name is, is Manny Yucatil, he, he messaged me back and I was like, yeah, like, I think I have a lot of work for you mm -hmm. to do. Um, and so I did that for uh, over a year, really. And it was a little bit of everything. I mean, it was project managing, it was fundraising, oh. it was program. I mean, it was absolutely a little bit of absolute everything because the organization yeah. touched a lot. This was before Zuckerberg had Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. So there was also a lot of different projects that would pop up that we would solve for because kind of his his yeah. roommate from Harvard, Joe and, and Manny were a little bit of catch-all uh, team. Um, and then it was there that I actually met my current partners, uh, Manu and Nitin, who were just starting the fund I work at. So on Shackle Ventures, at the very, when I met them, they had just closed the, the first $4 million or so. And the, the idea was they wanted to write really small checks um, uh, that would be the equivalent of a family and friends round for immigrant yeah. entrepreneurs. And they had kind of figured out a immigration law solution as well to help them uh, start working on these companies full time. And so met them at a happy hour, we started talking. I was really <laughs> excited about what they were doing. It really resonated with me as an immigrant. And yeah. um, obviously just seeing just how much of tech was created by immigrants that I was like, this, is, this, this has a lot of exciting uh, aspects to it. So that's that's a long story, but but that's how I ended in venture, which is where I'm at. I've been at the fund now for six years investing. Nice. I love it. So it sounds like this is really like true to you. Obviously, you were like an immigrant yourself. Um, can you talk about like some of the like people that come to you? Like, does it just make it way easier to relate with them? Like, hey, like, I really want to help you out here. Like, I have the same story as you. Like, let's talk or... Yeah, I think ultimately investing is a, a fairly personal thing, right? When you think about it, at least early stage venture, it's it's a couple of folks, you know, usually for us, it's a team of two, three people max that come together with an idea and, you know, maybe have done some prototype MVP, but it's pre-product, it's pre-revenue, right? There's nothing to even put in an Excel sheet. And so <laughs> when you're looking at three people, two people, one person, and they have an idea and they pitch it to you, um, I think it's naive to say that it doesn't become personal, right? That you don't have to have, you have to see something in that individual. And ultimately, like, there's no objective thing, right? Like, how do you pick a team? How do you pick a person whose dreams yes. and idea is right? Like, there's a lot of work to be done, right? Obviously, and does this business make sense? Does the market make sense? Mm -hmm. Are they thinking about customer? Like, that that stuff is a little bit more uh, objective. But when it comes to making a bet on humans, it's still pretty subjective. And so I think uh, I definitely love the way immigrants 
built companies, right? They're, they're pretty scrappy. Yeah. They uh, <laughs> don't burn money as fast. They hire other immigrants. They just hustle. Um, not saying that other, other founders don't, but it's different. Yeah. It's a different mentality and just uh, culture generally. And so it's one that resonates with me because that's how I grew up. That's where yeah. my family is. That's what my friends are. And so I'm particularly good at understanding it. And so um, it, it's just where I have my, I guess, advantage in, but, oh, you know, other VCs have advantage in just different life experiences, but I think venture in general is pretty personal. And I think life experiences and professional experiences will always give you a very unique lens that, uh, you can't ignore. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like it's so neat just cause yeah, you had those experiences. Do you think like, it is like such like a, like a great culture, like they have this great mindset because they're immigrants, they're coming to the United States. It's like the American dream is there, like, let's go get it. Or like, what do you think is that mindset, that culture that like really causes that shift to like, let's go? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, coming to this country on its own is a whole risk, right? Um, And starting a company is a whole nother risk, right? Thinking (laughs) like, I'm not gonna make money, I'm just gonna just make no money for like a year or two, work on something, right? So. But, but, you know, the interesting thing is I think that the best entrepreneurs are not, are those that are de-riskers. Uh, and so entrepreneurs are like immigrants are also de-riskers, right? Like it, it's about, they think through a lot before they take a risk. And so it's a very calculated risk. And so I think when you think about like very successful entrepreneurs, one thing they definitely have in common is that they're particularly good at de-risking something. Um, I think what I love particular about immigrant entrepreneurs for the most part is there's some a chip on their shoulder. Obviously they, for the most part are starting from scratch, even if they come from money, like mm-hmm. you know, you're, you come to this country, you're not who you are back at home. Um, and you know, something that I relate to a lot is if you don't have anything, there's only upside, right? You don't have, you have nothing to lose. You only yeah. have things <laughs> to gain. And so that um, asymmetric, uh, type of, of I have to prove something is it's actually good because mm-hmm. if you don't have anything to lose, you're, you're really going to be at it for a while versus um, I think it's, it's different for folks that have a lot. And so I, I appreciate that from, from anger entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's just gotta be a whole different mindset. Cause like for like context, like I grew up in like the safety, I grew up in Iowa. So the middle of the United States, like I, I don't have those perspectives on, Oh, this person is really going to hustle. Cause they don't have anything. Like I grew up in Iowa, like it's all there. Um, I, not all there, but you, you know what I mean? Like I yeah. have to go over those challenges. So what are some of the challenges that, okay, I don't know anything about immigrant founders. What are some of the hurdles that they have to uh, jump over that I may like be oblivious to? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a different unique experience in that um, if you didn't grow up here, uh, okay. didn't go to school here, maybe, or you just started your career here, then it's likely that you don't have, you know, a very strong network quite yet, right? Yeah. Uh, the exception of maybe you went to a good school, so you might have your school network, um, yeah. or you got transferred here. I don't know, you know, say you started at Google India and you came <laughs> here. You know, like you have some some peers, but it's a much thinner network than than if you grew up in New York, Silicon Valley, you yeah. name it. Um, and so that's one. Uh, the other one is uh, access to capital. And so if yep. you don't have a network, you're what is usually a family and friends round also might not be as obvious. And for the most part, if you come from an immigrant family, like, um, I don't know if I told my parents I want 500K to start a company, they would, even if they had it, they would give it to me. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> a majority of these folks don't do that uh, either. Yeah. So, you know, so access to capital, access to network. And, uh, and the biggest one that we saw an opportunity as a fund was on immigration, right? So many of the times when you come to this country, you know, majority 
universities are kind of the new Ellis Island is how we think of it. And there's a lot of international students coming here, great talent uh, that after they graduate need someone to sponsor their visa in order for them to stay here. Um, mm -hmm. It usually tends to be a big company, a big bank, a big tech, you name it. Someone who has got the money and the savviness to be able to sponsor a visa, which is not easy. Um, or there's folks that came to the U.S. through work and maybe are also tied to work through a visa and, and need to figure that out, right? So starting a company on a visa is definitely possible, but it's not easy to navigate. Yeah. Uh, period. Any immigration process is not easy to navigate. And so that's kind of where we saw opportunity as a fund was like we're going to have an um, inside like house council for immigration that is going to be able to do a lot of this work for the founders. Obviously, we're a venture firm, so we'll solve the access to capital part. And then ultimately, if we are a venture fund that only focuses on migrant founders, we should be able to build a pretty strong, solid community and network to support them. So it's like a plug and go community of you're, you're one of us and we're going to help you. That's exactly what I wanted to ask next. Like, so they come to you like, great, like we have a ton of money, but you're also giving them the resources of the networks of talking with, hey, like we know a lot of people in Silicon Valley that can also help. We'll give you the capital, but also go talk with these guys. That's where also you you come in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, two of the biggest, you know, pain points that early stage companies have is how to hire really good talent, right? I mean, you're trying to uh, get a new uh, engineer, a new designer, and that means you're going to have to fight for that talent because everyone wants an engineer designer, <laughs> not just small companies, big companies, SMBs, you name it, everybody wants that. Um, and the other one is uh, access to later stage capital, right? So once you get to your seed, your series A, your series B, and a lot of that comes from introductions and warm relationships. And that, you know, us as a fund, we've been doing this for seven, eight years. We're seven, eight years ahead of the game of a new <laughs> founder who just started on building those relationships with the late stage investors. And so we try to, to do that, which is like, we don't think these founders would succeed yeah. if we weren't there. Like they, you know, we're not, we're not gonna, well, what we think about it is that we help them succeed much faster, but we are sure and confident that our founders would probably succeed no matter what. It's just might take them a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. So I also kind of want to bring up a point like, so when they do come to you, we talked about a little bit earlier, what's like the breakdown? What's like the pie? Is it like when you're betting on someone, is it like 80% personal skills, like 10% like they have a product, like you, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's that breakdown look like? Like, what do you look for? Yeah, I mean, we, we like to think of, at the very least, as a team problem fit. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, is this team uniquely positioned or have some understanding, insight, or perspective here that's that's unique on the problem they're trying to solve? We're not only really yeah. focused on, on market, per se. Um, that's one. It, we're also very aware that for majority of our teams, once they get to Series A, it's a totally different company. Oh, yeah. And so I think for us, it's, it's, you know, are they problem solvers as a team? Um, have they worked together? How do they solve problems together? And the, I think the other one is what frameworks and mentality do they have behind finding out what to build and what the customer wants? And so there's a degree of how much customer empathy they have, user empathy, how they think about the customer discovery process, segmenting the market. And that stuff is, is you know, even before you write a line of code and you decide <laughs> to build something, it's, you know, you're assuming that there's a customer need there. And so the question yeah. is, what have you done to validate that customer need? And, you know, later on, we, we, other investors will worry about what have you done to validate that the customer is willing to pay you for that need. Um, ah. And so for us, it's, it's a lot of questions around what, how much do you understand the customer journey, the sales journey? That's cool. 
and and just yeah i mean a lot of digging into the team and their backgrounds and like you know why are you so obsessed with this problem that you're going to be spending you know up to 10 years of your life in in this oh my gosh that's like mind-boggling because you can really it really does put in perspective like these companies aren't you flip it in five years and sell for 20 billion or that's an outrageous number but like it really is like a long process in startups and like you guys are at the forefront of it like this is a family fund round that you guys are essentially giving to them for that 10-year vision yeah we're like the first money in for 10 years so we we want to make sure that they're ambitious and we'll always be chasing a very big problem even if it's not the one we decide on uh, and that they kind of have it in them to, to be in this for a while mm-hmm. i love that so i also have to bring up so like I found this from you. So I, I'm going to bring it up again. So it's like 76% of patents awarded to the top 10 patent producing universities had at least one foreign born investor. So what insight does someone born outside the US bring when they are on that team, just from like a market perspective or any perspective? Yeah, so I think the the stat is 76% of patents awarded at those top two universities had at least one foreign born inventor. And yeah. so Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Inventor, yes, yes. <laughs> My apologies, yes. <laughs> yeah, so 76% of these patents have uh, are created and are invented by someone who's foreign-born or an immigrant. Yes. Um, and so I guess that the thing here is, uh, look, I, it, it is just about thinking differently. Um, you know, there's a ton of research about, uh, this is not just unique to immigrants. Uh, a lot of, of research has been done on the, the advantages of having, you know, big corporations having entire teams spend extended amount of time abroad, you know, taking yeah. a team of, of this product and putting them in you know, Singapore, yeah. Malaysia, you name it, putting yeah. them anywhere in the world. And then the advantage is that when you grab someone and you take them away from what's familiar, um, there's just different parts of, of the brain that start connecting with new oh, ideas. Yeah. It's, it's you, it's you, you're remixing different things of, of environment, uh, experiences, whatnot. And so mm-hmm. you're, you have an increased chance that there's some innovation that's created. Um, and so it's, it's the, the unfamiliar really breeds innovation. Um, and that goes across, uh, every human out there and so uh i think you know most universities that have a lot of one brilliant people to begin with that are dedicated to doing research um and they're not from this country and they're surrounded probably with folks from other countries in a totally different country that is not theirs and all they sit there is do research and brainstorming then it's it's, yeah i'm I'm sure it's very more likely that they're going to come up with really innovative new technologies ideas research um, and that's, I mean, that's, I guess that's the beauty of our university system being yeah. really open to international students because it benefits both the U.S. population, U.S. students and, and everyone else. Mm-hmm. That's like one of the crazy things, like whenever you go on like an executive page and it's like all like white males, it's like, like, what the hell? Like you, they all probably grow up with like the same experiences. Like you have no diversity in there. And one of the things that I've noticed when I've moved out to Boston is like the conversations are just different out here compared to Iowa. And that's what I think really stirs up the pot of innovation is like, oh, I come from Iowa where I bring a different perspective and you live in Boston, like combining those perspectives is like what helps create something amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's just totally different perspectives on life. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, it, and it's, and it's across different intersections, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. socioeconomic diversity, it's yeah. racial diversity, it's uh, gender. I mean, you name it, I think that's yeah. You know, there's an enormous amount now of literature out there on just diverse teams are better and diverse companies are better um, and, and innovating and being uh, more 
you know, responsive and flexible to change. So that's, that's definitely something that totally just makes sense. Mm -hmm. What was it like when you moved out to San Francisco? Did you notice like a change in like how people like spoke? Like was everyone just talking about startups out there? Like that's what I get the vibe when you go to Silicon Valley. Like everyone just talked about startups all day. Yeah, it is definitely like that today. Um, I mean, it, you know, I moved out to the Bay Area for college. So I went to Berkeley and I think yeah. I particularly set myself up for like non-tech because I was in political science. Um, yeah. But it was, I think my junior year that, you know, I was already in my upper division classes and there was like a whole new set of professors that had just come in from MIT, oh. um, IT, MIT Media Lab. Um, and a lot of them or a lot of their side projects that they were working on research projects were with Google and with Facebook and, and all these tech companies. Um, and just the way that they did research, you know, Berkeley, it's really hard to leave Berkeley, even for a liberal arts major like political science and not have a very strong quant background because it's like statistics is mandatory, certain maths are mandatory. Um, and even political science, like, you know, the, the part that I focused on was political methods, uh, which is really around like the scientific method and understanding how to run uh, social experiments and specifically, and specifically here in, in political science context, which oh, was cool. voter behavior. Uh, how to had 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 people's voter uh, opinions change one issue, but I mean you name it, and just how do yeah. you test this across, like uh, statistically speaking? So it was it was interesting because that was the first time I was just like, wait, like you know, even like something like political science is really hard to now have data and yeah. tech now. You just kind of see it was eating a little bit of everything, <laughs> and so I was like, clearly there's something here, and that's when I started spending so much more time on understanding. But at the time, you know, Berkeley was, uh, you studied computer science or engineering, or there was this uh, major called Eeks, and that was, those were the folks that were there coding. And so when I thought about, like, I was like, oh, I'm not going to tech because I'm not a coder. Yeah. Uh, and then it wasn't until later on that I was like, oh, no, there's like, so many other roles to go into yeah. tech as, as a non-technical uh, person. Obviously, the technical folks had a huge advantage coming out of Berkeley, but oh, I was like, there's space for everyone. <laughs> and so... But I think now in, in venture, yeah, I think one of the, the reasons I actually have been really excited about what's going on in Miami, what's going on in New York, yeah. is there's a lot more diversity of industry mm. uh, and just diversity period than probably San Francisco. I mean, even LA has this, which is, you know, LA is an intersection of entertainment, media, yeah. consumer, um, but New York is too. And so uh, it's, it's interesting because I, I do think San Francisco has become a fairly homogenous, uh, which I don't think it's great. Mm -hmm. In what ways? Like, just do you think they're just so focused on tech or? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's overwhelmingly tech. I do think San Francisco <laughs> and like Bay Area in general, I mean, it's fairly white. It's fairly yeah. white, it's fairly educated. Um, and so you really got to step out of your, like go out of your way to interact with just like normal people. Oh. Um, Yuck. And so that are not just like, you know, I work in tech, I work in, you know, finance. I like it, it really is, it, it's a much different world. And versus, you know, I don't know, you're in New York, you get on the subway, you like meet all kinds of people. Yeah. Um, you go to events and there's a little bit of art galleries, there's a little bit of music. It, there's just so much different stuff going on. And so, you know, I'm sure San Francisco will will bounce back, but I think it's it's been a couple of years trending towards us a lot of same tech type of personality so um i think that you know hopefully it comes back in a more diverse way in, in the future i feel yeah is there like an industry like crossover that you're most excited for like tech applied to education for example or something crazy like that 
I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge consumer investor, yeah. so I love everything in consumer. Um, and I think just tech applied to anything that is consumer behavior, Sorry. consumer want or need or interest um, is particularly interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think right now tech applied to digital health is, so, is yeah. fascinating. Education, I mean, it's, it's going to be a wild ride for tech and education for the next 10 years or so. So uh, I think it's, it's definitely going to be exciting. Yeah, I like I like all the talks about like these like meta universes and like applying like VR and like you're just in a classroom. Um, I think it's just gonna be so exciting in the next 10 years about like the innovation that actually comes. Because personally, I think education and healthcare, they're like applying tech to that could like help our lives out so much more. Just better massive access. opportunities. Yeah, just more resources. You can be more hands on and just in healthcare as well. Like whoop, like it's just it just changes like how you think and like how you apply like makes you conscious of the decisions you make. And that's all thanks to tech. <laughs> exactly. Um, another question I have is, so huge in the news right now is Thernos. Um, I love the book. Um, Elizabeth Holmes, crazy story. Love it, love it, love it. Um, so it brings up an interesting point that Elizabeth Holmes said, essentially like these were seasoned in investors. They invested like $100 million in the company. These were seasoned investors. They knew what they were doing um, and they ultimately took the risk. So what are some of the ways that you personally de-risk like when you're looking at investments? Yeah, I mean, I think the Theranos example is, is interesting because I guess if you actually look at the cap table, uh, at least from what I've seen and, you know, I might, I might be missing some obvious big fun, but yeah. it wasn't heavily, I guess, Bay Area venture backed. There was a lot of like different family offices, individuals. I think maybe the most Bay Area name I think I saw there was Draper, but um, it wasn't very traditional venture. It wasn't Sequoia, Kosla, you know, like the old school guys who've been around for a while um, on that cap table. And so I think that that's one part. There was a lot of like DC money. There's a lot of family offices, a lot of probably folks that are not usually uh, in the venture space. So that's one, but I think to your question of what are some of those inherent risks in a startup? I mean, the risk at the early stage and, and even middle stage is it's still <laughs> on people, right? People yeah. are still people and humans are incredibly flawed. And your, you know, your duty to your LPs is to make sure you do as much you know, work as you can. And yeah. so, you know, we do, we do personal references, professional references, Ooh. customer references, um, we look at founders, you know, who are we connected to that are, you know, mutuals on LinkedIn. And even if they didn't put them as a reference, we will reach out and say, Hey, we decide that you're connected to this person looking into a company that they're working on. What's, you know, your, your experience working with this person or to what context do you know them? So if I have 20 mutual connections with a founder, you bet I'm going to reach out to all 20 connections, even if they only gave me two personal and professional references. So there's that kind of work, which is just trying to understand <laughs> the good, but the bad, the ugly of having yeah. worked with these people as peers, as managers, all that. Um, and then like, but, but one race that is just always inherent, even after you obviously checked for all the founders is mm -hmm. your founder is at the wrong party at the wrong time, at the wrong place, huh. happens to be caught up there. That's that you can't do anything about that because you're not going to reference every single one of your founders, friends yeah. or acquaintances or you name it. Um, <laughs> the journey is tough, right? It's a stressful yeah. time. Uh, you're, there's not a lot of money. There's not a lot of time. There's always something breaking. <laughs> and 
you know, that, that means many founders have a lot of, of mental health issues that come up and oh, absolutely. that can uh, result in good things and bad things. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of risks that come with folks uh, and just the individuals. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the, the most obvious risk is they're built a product or a solution for a problem that's not as big as we thought or that people are not willing to pay for as much as they can and, and the company fails. Uh, I think that's a, you know, the most obvious risk that you put yeah. almost in every memo, which is, look, we, we, we messed up the market size. We underestimate or overestimate how big of a problem or pain point this is, you name it. Those yeah. are, those are the obvious. I think the ones that I tried to you know, take a look at is, is definitely on, on the founders and the people, because you know, very successful companies can fall apart even at the later stages because of, you know, wrong leadership, wrong hiring, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen it. So that's definitely one. I think something I stress out a lot about is specifically because I'm so early is timing. Mm. Um, you know, if I'm betting on something a pre-seed, chances are that you know this trend, this market is really going to be popping in the next yeah. three to five years. And so sometimes I'm going to be too early. Sometimes I'm going to be too late. And so that's something that like on market timing that I, I, I stress out about it personally a lot. I don't know if, if my peers stress out as much as I do, but I think <laughs> I definitely do. Cause I'm like, am I, am I too early or am I too late? And usually ends up being I'm too early, uh, which is a good problem to have, but also one that is really hard to calibrate for. I love that. That is like why I love talking to people like you. Like I've like learned so much in this, but like I never thought about that. When people that invest in like a pre-seed round, they have to be worried about, is this going to be a huge trend in like three to four years? That's like a perspective like I just haven't even thought of. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, like you said, we know we all know education's changing. We're going to do a lot more immersive yeah. metaverse, VR, AR experiences. But when does that happen? Like that question of the why now? is a really tough one to solve for. There's always, you. I mean, you could, yeah. every memo has like 10 reasons of why now, but really, really answering like why now, today, why now? instead of like one year, two years, three years, that one's really tough. I love it. And we are winding down on time. I got to ask one more question. I just kind of want to know, like, do you have like a funny, like, like a bad story? Like, like someone brought, when they were pitching you, they brought like something weird in or like anything, anything that comes to mind or a great one that comes to mind? <laughs> wait, wait, sorry, repeat that again. So do you have like a, a story of like when someone came to pitch to you, did they bring in? Oh like, yeah. Funny pitch stories. I, lo- um, I got to hear a funny pitch story to, to end this off here. <laughs> we recently had one that was like plastic plates and it was like a new way of like um, just designing the plastic plates, like the way they looked was different. So that was an interesting one. Um, and there, you know, there's, we don't invest in like, CPG, DTC usually. I mean, there has to be a lot of software tech component to it, but that was a a really unique one that uh, we definitely had a good time with the team uh, about plastic plates. Because it was, I mean, it was a really dense uh, deck on on plates. So it was fascinating. I like it. Did you guys get to like eat food on the plates to like try them out like a shark tank? (laughs) (laughs) We did. And we've also had a couple of like new tech stuff, like new proteins, new chocolates that we have tried as a team that we're like, hey, like, you know, protein packed chocolate balls like let's see if Ooh. we like them um and you know we've had a lot of food that we have not liked and tried but it's all right that's gotta be cut one of the fun parts of investing though. <laughs> new foods innovative foods <laughs> exactly i love it i love it well thank you so much for joining us this was an awesome episode it was super fun talking with you is there work thank you ryan 
you or where can people find you on Twitter? Just plug Twitter. it all. Twitter is definitely the, the biggest way. I, I definitely am probably most active on Twitter. Uh, love, love that platform. Perfect. Twitter is awesome. And your handle will be below for everyone to check out. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. You were awesome. I applaud you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ryan. This is a pleasure.